Welcome to Teeth and Titanium, a podcast about oral surgery, residency, and life. We would like to thank the Canadian Association of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery for their continued support. All opinions expressed in this podcast by the hosts and their guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of the CAOMS. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon for surgical decision making. Welcome to Teeth and Titanium episode six. This is our October issue. Little spoiler alert, we're really projecting into the future here now, Oscar. Like October 2020, I don't, I'm not gonna say when we're recording this, but let's just say it's not October. To the point where I can't ask you how your baby or your exam went yet. Yeah, exactly. So fingers crossed, everything went well. We'll obviously give an update on that on the November episode. But we wanted to come back once again with content in October for you. And obviously, from our interview point of view, we're going to have Ben Felix on for part two. This is going to be, once again, more financial planning topics, more government registered program topics, such as the RRSP, RESP, how to plan for retirement, really talking about financial planning and financial wealth. So I think it's a very underserviced topic. Everyone always just thinks about what can I do in the stock market? What can I do with investments? How can I make money? They don't think about estate planning or retirement planning. Um, Which is so important. And the older you get, and like Wendell, I'm sure like your parents' stage and my parents' stage, they start to realize, wow, how important that really is. Yeah, exactly. Huge. Especially when you have a family, you're trying to figure that out. Yeah. One of the best things I think he said in our entire interview series, and I think there were a lot of pearls, a lot of gems. I hope everyone else agrees. But when you guys hear what he says about retirement and how to change the way you think about retirement, it was the biggest eye opener for me as far as the different advice that he was giving. So I think people, especially our veteran surgeons, are really, really going to like that part. So look forward to that. As far as we're going, you know, we're working away. Once again, we're recording this advance just to give you some content. So not much that we can say in the way of current events. But before we get into it, let's just jump right into the interview with Ben Felix. This is part two of our interview with Ben Felix from PWL Capital. All right, Ben. So, so far, we've talked a lot about investing and kind of, you know, stocks, index funds, a lot of things uh, revolve around investments. Now we want to jump into more financial planning and different topics, because as we mentioned, there's a lot more to your financial health than just stocks and investing. So the first thing we want to touch on is debt. Debt is something that students have a lot of coming out of school, especially dental school, medical school being very expensive. They also uh, might have line of credits as new surgeons. Some people might take a loan uh, for the house in the form of a mortgage or a loan for their practice to buy a new practice or set up a new practice. When it comes to debt, how should residents or new surgeons look at debt and maybe figure out what should I pay off first? What order should I tackle them in? And and how much debt is okay to have? I think that the most sensible way to think about debt is as an asset allocation decision. And that may sound confusing to some people that haven't thought about it this way before. But if we (laughs) dive back into investing just for a second, when you're talking about uh, choosing how to invest your your long-term savings, you're going to be thinking about the mix between stocks and bonds that you want to own in your portfolio. And debt is really just a I'm going to use financial jargon here, but I'll explain what it means in a second, is a short position in bonds. When you have debt, you're the borrower. You're the one that is paying interest to somebody else. So you're, you're, you're the safe investment for the bank, effectively, when you're borrowing money. 
And so if you're, if you're on that side of a debt transaction where you're somebody else's safe investment, that takes away from any of the safe investments that you yourself own. So if somebody's very conservative with their investments and they've got, say, 50% of their long-term investments in stocks and 50% in bonds, and they also have debt, the debt is kind of offsetting any of the bonds that they own. And it can end up being a very tax inefficient way to allocate assets. So, so if someone has a lot of fixed income in the portfolio or wants to have a lot of fixed income in their portfolio, then I think paying down debt for them makes more sense. On the other hand, if somebody's really aggressive with their investments and they want to be 100% in stocks, that, that's a case where, depending on the interest rate on the debt, but that's a case where you may be able to justify not actually paying down your, your debt too aggressively to allow yourself to invest more. It really comes down to asset allocation. Now, if you're going to be paying debts off, cho- choosing the highest interest debt to pay off first is generally going to make the most sense. And in the case of student loans, you're going to want the highest after-tax interest cost because in some cases with student loans, there can be some interest, some t- tax deductibility of the interest. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So kind of what you're saying is, for example, if you have a lot of money in the stock market and you're investing in the long run, the expected return of your investment might be higher than the interest that you'd be paying off on your debt. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I mean, investing with leverage, so that means borrowing money to invest, is something that people do intentionally. And there's actually been some some real peer-reviewed academic research suggesting that everybody should be doing this. Everybody should be borrowing money to invest. Uh, and it actually makes your, your long-term financial independence or, or retirement outcome more reliable and safer when you borrow when you're young to invest. Now, can, can anybody actually do that or can most people actually do that? The answer is probably no. I, I mean, even in the, the paper that I'm referring to, one of the things that had to happen for you to be successful as a, a young, extremely leveraged investor was that you have to you had to be able to get back up and what do they call it? Wipeouts. You had to be able to get up after a wipeout. A wipeout meaning you lost all of your money. Now that's not easy for most people to do. If you went and borrowed a bunch of money, invested in the stock market, and lost it all, how many people are going to go and get back on the horse? Probably not very very many. But anyway, the point the point of that little digression there is that borrowing money to invest. Where your your interest cost is lower than the expected return on what you're investing in, that's a real strategy that people use. So if somebody who has existing student loan debt chooses to invest in high expected returning stocks as opposed to paying off their debt, that's not completely crazy. It's not for everyone either, but it's also not completely crazy. Yeah, there's a huge behavioral component, and we're going to get into a little bit of that behavioral component later on this episode. So you mentioned younger investors. Let's talk about them now, because I think a lot of people after listening to these podcasts are going to you know, be desperate to start their financial journey, and they're going to be excited to start their financial journey. A lot of people will be you know, just graduating from residency or starting up their practice. And one of the issues they're going to run into right away is, I have this money that I've saved up and I want to invest, but I'm really, really scared of jumping into the market. What if I have $20,000 saved up? or I just received an inheritance of $200,000 and I'm afraid that if I get into the stock market today, you know, a week from now it's going to crash or it's going to go down by 10%, 20%. And if I just waited a week or two, then I would have gone in at a much lower price and my returns would have been much higher. 
How do you have this conversation with someone that's a little bit hesitant to get into the market? And should they just put all their money in at once or should maybe they spread it over a period of time? So I think the, the, the most important piece when I'm having this conversation with people is to step back from the, the nervousness and think about what the data say. And then we can address the nervousness afterwards. Well, what, what the data say is that uh, most of the time, most of the time being about two thirds of the time in the historical data, if you compare dollar cost averaging, so investing over uh, most of the research uses a 12 month period, which is itself arbitrary, but anyway, so that's, that's uh, instead of investing your lump sum money that you have all at once, dollar cost averaging would mean splitting it out over equal periods. So instead of one lump sum over, in, well, I guess in one time period, you would do 12 smaller sums. So over a year, if you did it monthly, uh, and that spreads out the, the timing of the investment, which helps you avoid, like the, the example that you gave, if you invest uh, your lump sum and then there's a crash, dollar cost averaging helps you to avoid that. Now, it's been studied in the academic literature. It's also been studied in practitioner literature, including a paper that I wrote this year. And the conclusion is always the same, which is that dollar cost averaging is suboptimal statistically. You're much more likely to be worse off at the end of the day by doing a dollar cost averaging strategy than you are to be better off compared to lump sum investing. And it ends up being about two thirds of the time that lump sum investing beats dollar cost averaging. Now, in the paper that I did this year, I tried to dig a little bit deeper into the data and I looked at uh, two, two instances where you might expect, like when we talk about people feeling nervous about investing their lump sum, I looked at two instances where you might expect dollar cost average, averaging to look better. And that was after bear markets. A bear market is a drop. Well, a bear market isn't formally defined, but it's generally, generally defined as a, a 20% or greater drop in stock prices. So I looked at dollar cost averaging against lump sum investing after bear markets, after, which is important. So that means the market has dropped 20%. And after the drop, you're making the decision to invest your lump sum or dollar cost average. And then I also looked at it when stock prices were in their 95th percentile of expensiveness. And that's maybe getting in a little bit of financial jargon, but when, when stocks trade at a high price relative to some fundamental measure, a fundamental measure would be that company's earnings or the book value of their assets. When stocks trade at high prices, they tend to have lower future returns. And I mean, it's, it's the classic case of, of looking at the historical data and you can see, oh, there's a market peak and then it crashes afterwards. Well, at market peaks, prices tend to be high. So anyway, bear markets, when stock prices are high, in both cases, dollar, uh, lump sum investing still has an, a substantial advantage over uh, dollar cost averaging. Even if you looked at when the market had just crashed 20%, you picked that time, or when the market was relatively very expensive and you were at a peak, even in those cases, statistically, you're more likely or not better off just investing all your money at once. That's exactly right. Now, so that's, that's the data. So you're sitting down to make this decision. Forget it with the behavior. You're going to make an evidence-based, database decision uh, with the best expected outcome. Okay, easy. You're going to do a lump sum. But obviously, humans aren't that easy when they're making decisions. So there, there's, if we switch from the sort of empirical data to the behavioral finance literature, you're more likely to regret taking an action, an act of commission, than you are to regret not taking an action, an act of omission. So an act of commission would be investing your money. An act of omission would be not <laughs> investing your money. Uh, so if we think about the lump sum example, if 
you make this decision to invest the lump sum and the market does crash, especially if you're feeling worried about it in the first place, there's a good chance you're going to feel really badly about it. And counterfactual thinking, thinking about uh, how things could have been, can actually be pretty psychologically painful. And it's something that can take up a lot of your, it, it can create a lot of mental overhead when you have counterfactual thoughts like that. So from that perspective, dollar cost averaging is an opportunity to diversify your acts of commission. So you are making a bunch of decisions, but I guess that's the point. You're making a bunch of decisions as opposed to just one. So you're, you're less likely to get that sort of extreme bad outcome based on your one single decision. So for a lot of people, that can be helpful. On the other hand, when I explain this, in a lot of cases, the person that I explain it to will just decide, well, forget about the behavior. If that's what the data say, I'm going to invest the lump sum. Yeah. And another, another way of thinking about it that I've heard before is that you know, dollar cost averaging, or let's say doing it over 12 months, is just turning one really hard decision into 12 really hard decisions. Because keep in mind, you divided your money up by 12. So let's say Jan 1st, the first 12th goes in and you feel great. The market may or may not have gone up or down. But when February 1st comes, you have to do that exact same decision again. Do I put the remaining money in or am I still doing the one twelfth? And every single month you're having to check yourself versus at least with a lump sum, it's all in, you know, the decision's done, you live with it and you move on knowing that, you know, 67% of the time it was the right decision to make. So that's kind of a great example of how behavior really impacts your financial well-being and just how you think about these things. Because up until now, we've really been drilling down on the data and, you know, making smart decisions based on the data. And ultimately, that's what we believe in. And even as medical professionals, we follow data, we practice based on data, knowing that complications can occur, bad results can occur. But as long as we're trying our best and following our standard of care and best uh, data we have available, that's the best we can hope for. But there are some ways that we can use behavior to our advantage. And one of those ways is by eliminating it all altogether, by doing automated payments or automated contributions. What are your thoughts on automating some of this financial decision-making processes to the point where maybe you have an automatic savings or an automatic investment or paying things off automatically? What do you think about the concept that automating these things helps you in the long run? I think as a spender, it can be tricky, like automating payments for all of the subscription services and things like that. Uh, that, that can end up working against you because it's very easy to just let them keep, keep on going. So I guess it makes sense that if you flip it around and as, a, as a, an investor, as, a, as opposed to a spender, it can be extremely helpful. Uh, I mean, the, there's the whole concept of the, uh, it came out of the book Nudge, which is exactly what you're describing, where it, the more that you can automate, the, the less decisions that you have to make, the more decisions that you can automate, the better off you're going to be. And if you can put yourself in a position where you're automating decisions that you've deemed to be good ahead of time, then you're, you're removing yourself from the equation, or at least as, as, as much as, as is reasonable. So yeah, I, I think that the, the, the more that you can do that by setting up things like automatic monthly contributions to an investment account, to the extent that's possible, which depends on the on the brokerage, that's hugely beneficial. Yeah, and the thing that kind of reminded me of this and inspired me was I I play hockey on Sunday nights, and I was driving home from a game, and when I arrived at the arena, it, there was light outside, and when I left, it was dark. And I noticed when I was driving home, the headlights in my car had automatically switched on. 
because now they're based on light sensors in the newer cars and they just turn on, whereas before you had to manually turn it on. And we've all had those times where you forgot to turn your headlights and someone's honking at you or telling you to turn your lights on or maybe even got in trouble because of that. So it was just a reminder to me that, you know, automating some things can be really helpful. And, it, you know, it, it relates a lot to the conversation we just had about dollar cost averaging. So you, you, you described a potential downside of dollar cost averaging of having to make that decision multiple times each time that you have to invest a, an additional amount to reach your dollar cost averaging goal. If you're manually investing an amount of your income every month or every couple of weeks, you might end up in that exact position where even though you know this is your plan and you know that you should be investing through some external motivation, like something you heard on the news, or maybe even just get busy, uh, but that can, can, can completely throw off a systematic plan. But if you are, are able to truly automate it where it's completely hands-off, and this is one of the things that robo-advisors can be really great for, and the, the discount brokerages are sometimes not as ideal for, where you can completely go hands-off, totally automated with a robo-advisor, and they make sure all your cash gets invested at your, your appropriate asset allocation and stuff like that. But yeah, that can be extremely important, especially if you have concerns about how you might behave when the market's not doing so well. Now, speaking of you know, the market going up and down, another huge topic for a lot of our listeners is going to be saving up for purchasing a home. A lot of people, you know, when they graduate, they're at that time in their lives where maybe they're looking to start a family or already have one, and they're looking to purchase a home. And right now we're talking about you know, a home for a primary residence. We're not talking about real estate as an investment or anything like that. But when it comes to saving up for a home, should a resident or a new surgeon be invested in the stock market? Should they be in bonds with that money? What should they be doing with their down payment? And there, is there any kind of general timeline or rule that people can think of when it comes to saving up money or investing money for a short-term need? So the timing question is kind of tricky. I think for a lump sum, and that means that you need the full amount of the money. I think that 10 years is... Is the, is the shortest amount of time that you should be investing in stocks. If you have $100,000 and you know you need $100,000 in three years, it probably shouldn't be in stocks. Because over three-year periods, there's a, there's a pretty good chance that you end up with less than you started with and you would have been better off just in a you know, low-interest savings account. Now, it's tricky though, because statistically, and this kind of speaks to what we talked about with dollar-cost averaging, even over short periods of time, there, there is still a positive expected return on stocks. So as much as I'm saying, well, if it's less than 10 years, you shouldn't be investing in stocks, even over monthly periods in the historical data, you have a positive expected return. Say it's 60% of the time or something like that, monthly stock returns are, are positive historically. And that makes it a bit tricky because again, if we're making an evidence-based decision as a rational economic actor, you should be investing your down payment in stocks. But I think if we, again, tie this back to the behavior component, that gets really tricky. Because if you take your $100,000 or $200,000 and invest it in stocks because there's a 60% chance that you're going to get a good outcome over the next month, <laughs> there's a 40% chance that you're going to get a bad outcome. And if that affects your ability to buy a home or put a down payment on a home, I think that can be extremely challenging. Yeah, because for example, sure, the stock market might go up, and you have a bigger down payment and it's less interest on your mortgage, that's all great. But as you said, let's say 40% chance it goes down, maybe all of a sudden you can't afford the home you even wanted to move into. Yeah. So in general, if I know someone's saving up for a house, 
And like for, for clients, they'll always make sure that they know this. If, if you're thinking about making a big purchase, we always need to talk about it sooner rather than later, because you might, you might even pull some money out of your long-term investments in anticipation of that decision. And you definitely might reallocate your savings from stocks into a savings account. This is completely anecdotal, but still worth mentioning. In this recent coronavirus-related downturn that we had, all of the clients that I was dealing with prior to that, that had housing goals that we were planning for and saving for, they all had their cash for the down payment in cash or in a high interest savings account. And so all of this happened and their long-term plan was unaffected because the cash for the short-term stuff was there. It was on hand. It was ready to go. And the long-term stuff dropped in value, but that's okay. That's, that's to be expected from time to time. But in those cases, they were able to proceed with house buying, the house buying goals that they had, assuming that they could get viewings and stuff like that, which is obviously a bit trickier now than it was before. But the point is that the, the decision was not affected by the market drop. And just from reading stuff online and, and talking to people, it seems like there were some people at least that had house down payment money in stocks prior to the coronavirus. And that's, you know, that's, that's painful. That's no good. Yeah, I completely agree. So I think that's a good way of looking at purchases that might be, you know, a known purchase in the short term. As you said, a house is one example. But another great example for surgeons is if you know you want to buy into a practice, a group practice, and you know there's a buy-in, or if you're looking to purchase a practice, if you're a solo practitioner, um, that's a known cost coming up. Things like family expenses coming up. Let's say you know you have a wedding coming up, uh, or you want to get married in the next few years. Wedding is a known expense. So these are the types of things you want to think of is, what do I have going on in the next five to 10 years? What are known expenses? And maybe you want to earmark that money and keep it safe. Now, the majority of our listeners are Canadian and work and earn income in Canada. So I think now would be a great time to talk about some government programs that we can really benefit from as Canadians. So the first couple that we want to talk about is the RRSP and the TFSA account. So let's start with the RRSP, the Registered Retirement Savings Plan. And can you describe what exactly that is in general terms and how a, a surgeon should use that to their benefit? In broad terms, an RRSP is what is known as a tax-deferred savings account. Now, I don't, I don't think that name is totally accurate, but that's the, the broad term for that type of account. Canada is not the only country that has tax-deferred savings accounts. Ours is called the RRSP. In the US, they have uh, the same type of thing, but it's a different name. Now, what happens with the RRSP or with a tax-deferred account is that you put your pre-tax income into the account. Practically, what that means is, because most people have taxes withheld from their paychecks, practically what that means is you put dollars into the account and you then get to deduct the contribution from your taxable income. So what's really happening there is you're making a pre-tax contribution. Practically, that's not how it typically happens, but that, that is what is happening and that's the, that's the best way to think about it. You're putting your pre-tax income into the account. Now, one of the things people get wrong, and this is why I don't think tax deferred is the best name, all of the investment growth inside of the RRSP is tax-free, but you only get tax-free growth on the portion of the account that you own. Now, that's a bit tricky to think about. But if we think about somebody who has, just for easy numbers, a 50% tax rate now and at retirement, same, same tax rate all the way through. When you put your pre-tax income into the RSP, only half of it is yours. 
Half of it is the government's. You just haven't given it to them yet. Now, both your half of the, of the contribution and the government's half are going to grow over time. But you don't get to keep the growth on the government's half. That's all theirs. But you do get to keep all of the growth on your half. So on, you, on the portion of the contributions to the RSP that you own, you get tax-free growth. Now, something else happens at withdrawal, and I was kind of just referring to it. When you withdraw from the RSP, you have to pay tax on that income. And this is why it's called a tax-deferred account. You're deferring your income tax. You're getting tax-free growth on investments inside of the account, but you're deferring your income tax. So in the example uh, with my 50% tax rates, when you withdraw from the RSP, you get to take all of the money, the, the 50% that you owned initially and all of its growth, that comes out tax-free, but you have to give the government their, their portion. Now, the amount that you actually give them practically might be less than 50% because your tax rate might have dropped between when you made the contribution and when you made the withdrawal. And that, I think the best way to think about it is just like a, it's, a, it's a bonus. You might get a bonus if you're able to withdraw at a lower tax rate in the, in the future. You, you mentioned the TFSA too, and it dovetails really easily with the discussion about the RSP. So the RSP, you get the whole tax deferral mechanism that I just mentioned. You make a pre-tax contribution. With the TFSA, this is referred to generally as a tax-free account. And just like the RSP, other countries have similar types of accounts with different names. With the TFSA, you're using your after-tax income to make a contribution. So in our RSP example, the 50% that the government, that you owe the government in the RSP, that just never goes into the TFSA. You pay that to the government first, and then you get to put the after-tax portion into the TFSA. Now, all growth on that account is tax-free, just like the growth on the, on the 50% of the RSP contribution that you owned. So when you make a withdrawal from the TFSA, there is no tax. There's nothing to give back to the government because you gave it to them at the beginning. Now, the reason this, this dovetails so nicely together is that in my 50% tax rates at the beginning at the contribution and withdrawal phase of the RSP, uh, in, in that case, with the tax rate staying the same all the way through, the RSP and the TFSA will give you the exact same after-tax result. So in terms of which one should I use, RSP versus TFSA, if we assume your tax rate's going to stay the same, that you're, you're indifferent from an after-tax wealth perspective. And this is an important part, point because a lot of people don't realize that, that as you said, if, if your tax rate, if your personal income tax rate is the same, it doesn't matter if your money was in the RRSP and it might look like way more money in your RRSP account versus the money was after tax in your TFSA, which might look like a much smaller account. As you said, the government owns a portion of all the money in your RRSP based on your tax rate. So it really just becomes a benefit if your future income tax rate is much lower than your tax rate when you contributed to your RRSP. Yeah. And the other big considerations there are government benefits that are income tested, both pre and post retirement. So if, you're, if you have kids, maybe as an easy example, there's an income tested benefit from the government per, per child. If you're making RRSP contributions, and obviously this depends on what your overall situation looks like, but if you're making RRSP contributions, you're reducing your taxable income now which might be beneficial from a government benefits perspective. But in the future, you've got to withdraw that money. If that pushes your, your taxable income up to a certain level in retirement, you might end up losing government benefits. So that's one of the other things to, to weigh is the, the government benefits both now and in the future and how the RRSP is going to inter interact with those. And I think the other big one there is, is flexibility. So with the RRSP, you make a contribution, you, you get the income deduction like we've been talking about. Once the money's in there, that's it. 
if you withdraw it, which you can do anytime. People, some people think there's a penalty on RSP withdrawals. That's not true. You can take the money out whenever you want, but you don't get the contribution room back. So from that perspective, the RSP is much less flexible, which contrasts with the TFSA, where anytime you make a withdrawal, you get the amount that you withdrew back as new room the following calendar year, which makes it a much more flexible account if you're using it for shorter term savings or if in an emergency you have to take the money out of the account, you get the contribution room back. Yeah. So for example, let's say you had a purchase you had to make and you need to take money out of your RRSP or your TFSA. With the TFSA, you can take that money out, you can uh, make that payment, and the next year all that room comes back. But with an RRSP, that room is gone. So usually they'll say uh, as a rule, when you put money in your RRSP, it needs to be earmarked for the long term. You want it to grow tax-free for a long, long time. You don't want to touch that money. Okay, so now we understand RRSP versus TFSA, but so far we've been talking more about, you know, a resident, a young surgeon. What about our veteran surgeons that are listening? Some of them might have, fortunately, a lot more money. They might have a corporation where a lot of their money is kept in. Does the conversation change at all if you're incorporated? So I think for for high income earners in general, just stepping back from the corporation for a second, is when the RRSP is going to be the most advantageous. If we think back to our RSP TFSA comparison, if your tax rate stays the same, they give you the same after-tax result. But if your tax rate drops a lot between the contribution and the withdrawal, the RSP gives you a substantial bonus, is is the best way I can describe it. But if you can withdraw at a a much lower tax rate than you made the contribution at, you get a significant bump. So now that's high income earners in general. If we talk about people that have corporations, it's kind of tricky, but also a really interesting problem. Because you have control over the amount of taxable income that you personally receive when you have a corporation. Your corporation earns income. You then choose whether you're, whether you're going to pay yourself a salary or, or pay yourself a dividend. And you also get to choose how much. You, you might make $400,000 in a year net, net inside your corporation, but you might only pay yourself a $50,000 salary. So that, that flexibility in taxable income makes the RSP TFSA decision a little bit trickier because you have the option of paying yourself a low salary, minimizing personal tax and leaving money inside the corporation. I think it's probably too much to get into the specifics of of what makes sense and when, but I think as a general rule, using registered accounts, the RSP and the TFSA, when you are incorporated, and this is just a general rule, does still make sense. And one of the implications of that might be paying salary to get RSP room which is interestingly a very divisive topic when you get into the sort of tax and accounting niche. A lot of accountants will say, absolutely don't do that. Well, others will say, absolutely do. Not many people land in the middle on that one. So there is a lot of planning there. And it's worth mentioning too, with the, and this became more relevant when the $50,000 passive income limit for Canadian controlled private corporations started to exist. Getting money out of the corporation is a good thing which means, means the RSP is a good thing. There, there's another planning tool called the IPP, which is an individual pension plan. And again, I know this is getting more complicated than it needs to be, but it's, it's worth mentioning briefly. An IPP in sim- very simple terms is kind of like an RSP that gives you more room and has a couple of extra restrictions and a couple of extra features. But you can only use that if you've been taking a salary historically. They don't tend to make sense until after the age of 40. But anyway, that, that question for the per- person who's incorporated of, of should they use the, the registered accounts, which 
backs into the question of how should they pay themselves. They're all important decisions and there's a lot of nuance and a lot of planning options built in there. Definitely. And when it comes to registered accounts, there is another one that we need to talk about, the RESP or the Registered Education Savings Plan. Now, this might be a a shameless plug, but I am expecting my first child in the fall. So one could argue that this entire podcast, entire interview has just been an elaborate ruse to get free advice on what I should do about my RESP account for my kid. But when it comes to the RESP, For people, you know, they're expecting uh, kids, they have uh, young families, maybe they haven't taken advantage of this yet. What is it? How should they invest in it? How much should they put in? And is it really true that the government will actually give you some money for free if you use this tool? Yeah. And this does tie back into the the corporation issue because these decisions might change whether you're incorporated or earning a, a personal income. But I'll just talk about the RESP in general. For now. So when you make a contribution to the RESP, the government will match your contribution up to a maximum amount per year, up to a lifetime uh, matching contribution amount, which is $7,200 for the the CESG, the Canada Education Savings Grant. For low-income households, there is also something called a savings bond, which goes into the RESP account if it's opened, even if you don't make contributions. Based on the audience, I'm, I'm guessing most people would, wouldn't qualify for the bond, but it, it's out there anyway. There, there's this ability to attract grants from the government by making contributions. The, the, the numbers are $500 is the annual grant amount. So each year that a child is alive, they get a $500 grant allocation. You only get the grant into the account if you've actually made the contribution. So the 20% match, the $500 grant, it's a $2,500 contribution per year to maximize the grant. If you get behind, for example, you don't open the RESP in the first year that the child is alive, you can catch up two years at a time max. So they'll pay, the government will pay $1,000 maximum per year if you double up on contributions, if you, uh, if you get behind. Now, all of this happens up until you've reached $7,200 in, in grants, which happens once you've made $36,000 in contributions. So great. So you get this 20% match. Awesome. Once you put $36,000 in, the grants should be maxed out. Now, the interesting thing is this leaves you with $14,000. I haven't mentioned this yet. There's a $50,000 lifetime contribution limit on the RESP. So once you've maxed out the grants with $36,000, there's another $14,000 that you could put in. Now, you don't have to wait to put it in. So a lot of high-income households will make their first $2,500 contribution to get the matching grant. And then in the same year, they'll put $14,000 into the account, which they know is never going to attract a grant anyway, but that money can start growing tax-deferred right away. Now, that tax-deferred piece is important. With the RESP, you make contributions with your after-tax income. You get a matching grant from the government, or in addition to a bond if you have a low-income a low income household. So you've got your contributions, you've got the grant. The growth on the grants and the contributions, the growth is not taxed until it's withdrawn. Now, if it's withdrawn by the beneficiary child and they're enrolled in post-secondary education, which is broadly defined by the government, there's a whole bunch of things that qualify. If they're enrolled when that withdrawal happens, they pay tax on the grant and the growth at their tax rate at the time, which for most families, their student child is going to have a low income. 
So it can work out to be a, a pretty good planning tool. And then what about the common myth that yeah, I put all this money in the RESP, turns out my kid, you know, for, for their own circumstances, either doesn't go to, to do anything after high school, they don't go to university, maybe they drop out after a couple of years, maybe they want to travel the world. What happens? Do I lose that money? You don't lose it. Now, in your examples, there was one in there that, that was important. If they drop out after a couple of years, you could have made all the tax-efficient withdrawals upfront. Once they've been enrolled for 13 weeks in a, in a program, you can withdraw all of the grants and growth taxable to the child. So if you're, if you're worried about a you know, flight risk or that they're not going to stay in, in school, but they, but they do get enrolled for at least 13 weeks, you could withdraw all of it upfront. Now, they'd pay a bit more tax because they'd have more income that year. So the moral of the story is just make sure your kid stays in school for at least 13 weeks. That's that to, to make the tax efficient draw. That is uh, <laughs> yeah. that's that's all that's needed. If that doesn't happen, if they don't enroll at all and you can't make those tax efficient withdrawals. So this is kind of a, a, a worst case scenario. And it can happen if a child doesn't go to school for a lot of different reasons. Um, I've seen it happen for a child where the RESP was started and it, it turns out Later on in life, that the, the family finds out the child has a disability, for example, and they and they can't, or it's not reasonable for them to attend post secondary school. In a case where the RESP has to be closed down, the grants go back to the government. The growth on the grants and the contributions comes out taxable to you, not the not the child beneficiary in this case, to you, the contributor, taxable at your tax rate plus a twenty percent penalty. So it's not it's not, not the end of the world. Like you gave the grant back, you pay, you pay a bit of a penalty, but it's not terrible. Your contributions come right back out to you. So the money's not gone. And that's the worst case scenario. I mentioned early, earlier that post-secondary education is broadly defined for this purpose. And it is. There are tra- trade schools. There, there are all sorts of educational institutions that qualify for these tax-efficient withdrawals. Yeah. So I think when it comes to the RESP, for everyone out there with new families or kids, Simply just to break it down, you really want to, if you can, put at least $2,500 in the RESP for each of your kids every single year just to get that $500 free from the government up until a max of $7,200 total. And if you are fortunate enough to have maybe some extra cash lying around, you can supercharge your RESP when your kid is born by adding an extra $14,000. I want to switch gears here for a second into a topic that many, many people are really, really passionate about. And this is real estate. And especially when it comes to their place of residence, so where they want to live, should they be renting a home or buying a home? And I'm going to preface this by saying that, you know, I'm born and raised, I come from an Indian family, and brown people are obsessed with real estate. The concept of not owning real estate, not owning your home is like a mortal sin to my family and my extended family. I should say my extended family more than my immediate family because they kind of get what's going on. But you've published uh, and talked a lot about the difference between renting your home and buying your home. And you're a strong advocate that there are certain situations where renting is better and maybe buying is better. And it's important to remove kind of the emotional aspect. We're not talking about you know, the warm, fuzzy feeling you get because you own your home. We're just talking about in practical terms, when do you think it's appropriate for someone to rent the home they're living in versus looking at buying a home? So that's a very personal question for, who, for whoever's making the decision. It's tough, tough for me to say, but I think step one in understanding this decision, the most important step, and this is most of the work that I've done is focused on this, 
is understanding that renting is not a bad financial decision. And actually, I'd even push that further. And this is what my the, the work that I've done on this has shown. Renting and owning can actually be equivalent from a financial perspective. So in, in terms of the impact on your expected future wealth, renting and owning can be the same, meaning there's no advantage or disadvantage to either one. Now, that statement hinges on a lot of assumptions, including things like the, the growth rate for real estate, the growth rate for stocks, the amount of tax you're paying, your asset allocations. There's a lot of stuff built into that, into that statement. But if, if, for example, if you own a home, well, let me back up. Rent is an unrecoverable cost. Unrecoverable meaning you pay money for something, you get housing in return, but the money's gone. There's no residual value. When you own a home, so that's you know renting, oh, you're paying someone else's mortgage, you're throwing money away. Unrecoverable cost. Owning also has unrecoverable costs. And this is where I think people get caught in, in thinking that it, with a home, you're building equity and it's, it's all good and you're whatever. When you own a home, you're still paying property taxes, which where I live are about 1% of the value of the, of the property. You're still paying for maintenance. Now, how to estimate maintenance costs is a, an interestingly divisive issue, again, where some people will say it should be higher, some, some lower. But I, I generally use 1% on average of the property value per year. So now between property taxes and maintenance, that's 2% of the value of the property in unrecoverable costs that you're paying. Now, the last one, and this is a, a big one, is the cost of capital. So any money that you put into equity in a home, in, in a property, is money that you're not putting in the stock market. That has an opportunity cost, which is an unrecoverable cost. Now, again, there's a bunch of assumptions around this, but if we, if we make the assumption that you own the home outright, so there's no debt, it's all, all equity in the home, and the alternative would have been investing in stocks, in an aggressive stock portfolio, uh, based on historical real estate growth rates and historical, uh, actually not historical, and estimated stock returns based on current market prices. I think it's reasonable to use a 3% opportunity cost on, on equity. So in this simple example where the home is owned outright, we've now got property taxes, maintenance costs, and the cost of equity, which works out to 5%. Now this changes depending on a whole bunch of factors, but if we use that as a baseline, 5% of a property is going to be an unrecoverable cost. You can equate that to rent. So you can see how much, how much am I paying in unrecoverable costs to own a home? And how does that relate to the amount, of, amount I would have been paying in unrecoverable costs as a renter? And if those equal, you're indifferent. This is the part that people really have a tough time understanding. So I really want to spend another minute diving into this because a lot of people, and you kind of mentioned one of the most classic lines, which is renting is paying someone else's mortgage. Renting is blowing my money and someone else is going to sell this home and make a lot of money. Whereas if I can, if my mortgage, I think the number one thing that's said is if my mortgage is equal to my rent, then they're equivocal. And on one side, I own a home. On the other side, I'm blowing my money. And that is one of the, the largest misconceptions. And one of the aspects you touched on is the opportunity cost. And this is, this is huge. And I'm going to spin it in a different way, which is a lot of people, when they talk about real estate as an investment, now we're talking about as an investment, they'll say, oh, I bought this house for a million 
and I sold it for X and look how much money I made. If I had taken my $100,000 down payment and I put it in the stock market, I only would have made this much in the same amount of time. But that's a flawed argument because you're not investing $100,000 in your home. Your house is a million. You borrowed 900000 from the bank to make that investment. It's what we call a leverage investment, which you touched on earlier. So if you want to compare apples to apples, you need to go then take a million dollars and put it in the stock market and see what could have happened. And we're not even talking about the unrecoverable costs that you mentioned, which is property tax, maintenance, things like that. So I think it's worth reemphasizing in your words. Maybe you can just touch on again. What do you say to someone that says, you know, renting is throwing my money away. I want to own the home. It's proven to be a great investment all the time. Housing prices always go up. What's the harm in, in, just, in just buying my home? The simplest way to think about it is that owning has unrecoverable costs too. And they equate to roughly 5% of the value of the property. Now, give or take, and that changes based on a whole bunch of different things. I, I have a YouTube video that I posted that kind of walks through how to arrive at that 5% number. And once you have that information, you can adjust it for your own situation. But that's, that, that is the most important piece, is that uh, when you own a home, you have unrecoverable costs, which in many cases end up being greater than the unrecoverable costs you would have had as a renter. Now, that's, that's all important. There's another piece in there that I think is, is equally important. So if we start on the footing that they, renting and owning can be equivalent financial decisions, and you, you alluded to this when you introduced this, this topic, I think there are cases where renting is objectively better than owning. And likewise, cases where owning can be better. For owning, in Canada, we have the principal residence exemption on gains. So if you purchase a home that you live in as your, as your primary residence and it appreciates substantially in value, all that appreciation is tax-free. So that makes real estate appreciation potentially very tax-efficient especially if the alternative is investing inside of a taxable investment account where you're paying tax at a high at a high rate. So for very high income earners, I, I don't think it, it, it doesn't make sense to say that renting doesn't make sense if you have high income. But I think that, that that equation changes a little bit. So instead of using a 5% unrecoverable cost on real estate, you might use a, a 4% if, you're, if, if the alternative is investing in a taxable investment account and you have a high high income. So I think that's important. The, the, the tax shelter of the principal residence is important to consider. It doesn't break the equation. It just changes it a little bit. And then the other big one is we're assuming in both cases a rate of return. Now, we talked earlier about how unreliable rates of return can be in the short term. There's a lot of volatility and that's true for real estate, even though it hasn't really shown up for about 20 years in Canada. Um, but prices can still be volatile for real estate, likewise for stocks. So if you're buying a home for three years, you think, and then you're going to move to a bigger house or something like that, I think the price risk on owning for short periods of time is, is something that's not considered enough. And I think it's not considered enough <laughs> probably because real estate prices have only gone up, not, not, not actually, but in, in big cities in Canada, it seems like real estate prices have only gone up for the last 20 or so years. That and the fact that everyone's kind of looking at their house, what it was valued at when they bought it and when they sold it. No one's seeing, no one's getting a report every single day about the fluctuations in the price of their home like you can with stocks. Can you imagine if every single day you got an email saying what your house was worth and you just saw it going up and down all the time? Yeah. Yeah. So over, over short time frames, I think that's an important one. And in my opinion, that makes, if you anticipate not staying 
in a place, whether that's in the same city or the same house or whatever, for 10 years. I guess I come back to my 10-year rule that I use for stocks too. If you're not going to be there for 10 years, the price risk and the transaction costs of buying real estate as opposed to renting make renting a lot more attractive. And that's, I mean, another obvious benefit that ties back to what I just said is that renting gives you a lot more flexibility. So if you think you might be moving around or if you know you might be moving around or your lifestyle might be changing, like having a family or something like that, I think the case for renting is pretty compelling. And I think it works even after that too. Like I, I rent now. It, it's important to find a good rental situation. Like I have a family, I have four kids, so I don't want to be, you know, rent evicted. There are ways, not, not around that, but there are ways to, to work with a landlord to put yourself in a good situation. Like I signed a three-year lease when we moved here. And I had a pretty good understanding of what the landlord's overall situation was. So I think there, there's a lot of myths out there about renting being precarious and, and dangerous and all this kind of stuff. I, I disagree. I think, I think it can be, but I think if, if you know the laws and you do your due diligence, renting can be reasonable even for someone with a family. Yeah, I can, I can already tell a lot of listeners' heads will be exploding on this topic. Maybe people will have really passionate ideas about this. This is always one of the most controversial topics. I know you mentioned you have a YouTube video on it. I highly recommend uh, people check it out if you're interested in this specific topic. On YouTube, you can look up Common Sense Investing and look for the video that says the 5% rule. It's one of the most watched videos on your channel, one of the most commented, always generates a ton of conversations. So I think people should definitely check that out if they have any more questions. Now, up until now, I'd say the large majority of our previous part and this part has been on, you know, investing and financial planning for residents, which is great, and young surgeons, which is great. But we have a lot of listeners, maybe even the majority of our listeners that are veterans, you know, maybe they've already paid off their mortgage. Maybe they already own a practice. Maybe they don't have student loans. And they're probably thinking, yeah, this is all great. There's, I've, I've taken great knowledge from this and maybe I can fine tune some of the things I'm doing or my mind has been opened up to index funds and whatnot. But I want to dedicate the last two topics we have more to the veterans. And that's going to be talking about, first of all, retirement tips. So the whole world of retirement planning and what we're going to get into is very complex. And obviously every situation is different, but we wanted to give you the opportunity to maybe give some general retirement tips especially for those surgeons that are maybe thinking about retirement and they can see it in their horizon for the first time. So I'm going to take a a bit of a non-financial angle here. I think one of the most important things with planning for retirement is knowing exactly what you're planning for and why you're planning for it. I think a lot of people have a, not arbitrary, that's not quite fair to say, uh, but they have a, a target for the amount that they need to save before they think that they can retire. And then they dream of retirement as being this sort of end. And I don't think people spend enough time thinking about what the alternatives are, as opposed to saving up your 3 or $4 million and then end retiring. There are often alternatives like working less now and maybe needing to save less overall because you're working longer, but reduced hours in a way that makes your lifestyle as enjoyable as possible, or even just enjoyable, not as enjoyable as possible. I think for a lot of people, not working can actually be a little bit depressing. And there's a lot of good data on, on that for, for retirees. So I think that's, that's one of the biggest ones, is to understand exactly what you're planning for. I think people need to define, they need to define their, their purpose, which is obviously a big statement uh, and, and probably hard to think about, 
but de de defining your purpose, figuring out exactly what it is that you want out of life. And then from that stems your priorities and your priorities, they could be saving if, if that end example is, is what you want and that affects your lifestyle. But if your priorities are travel, you can still do that while, while working. So anyway, I think that's figure out what you, what your purpose is, figure out what your priorities are. And then the, the, the financial aspects stem from that because you'll plan differently depending on the path that you're planning on taking. Yeah. So I think maybe you might say someone that's planning to retire and stop working completely versus someone that says, I only want to work one or two days a week and maybe even teach at the university, your financial plan and how much you have to save, how much you can spend. Those are probably two radically different plans, I would imagine. Radically different. And this is one of the, I'm going to say sad, and I think that's the right word to use. It's one of the saddest things that, that you'll see out there where people keep their heads down and they, and they work tirelessly, maybe doing something that they don't love, or maybe working an amount that they don't love in order to get to this, this target dollar amount so that they can retire and do something else. The, the math changes drastically if you work longer even if it's working longer, doing something with a reduced pay. So that, that can materially change what a plan looks like. And it's something that I don't think enough people consider. It's funny. This is just purely anecdotally for me. But I think for us as surgeons, we usually actually end up having, for a lot of people, the opposite problem where we really enjoy our work. We love our practice. We love teaching. We love academia. And what happens to us is we're not able to work anymore because either our backs give out, our hands give out, fatigue, it's just too long, the hours, we can't keep up, things like that. But knowing that maybe taking a broader picture view, what are you looking to gain and what do you want to do? As you said, maybe if you slow down a bit earlier, you might end up working longer and you won't have to work as hard from an earlier age. So I think that's some great advice and something that everyone should definitely look into. Two things that people that are retiring or heading towards retirement absolutely need to know about in Canada are CPP, the Canada Pension Plan, and OAS, the Old Age Security. I think CPP is something that a lot of people know about uh, because you know it automatically comes out of your paycheck or if people have employees, they're, they're contri contributing to it on their, their behalf. OAS, Old Age Security, I feel like is a topic that maybe people aren't as aware of, but when it comes to CPP and OAS, what do you usually recommend for retirees as far as maybe when to take it, how to avoid what's called the OAS clawback? Is there anything that people should know about? Yeah. When to take it is, uh, that's a tricky one. And it's tricky because there are a lot of different paths that you can take. I interestingly, th there was a, a study that somebody did that I read on CPP earlier this year, where they found that taking it at age 65 is never optimal, which is interesting because it's, it's, it's when it's, it's the normal age to take CPP uh, without any reduction or addition to the benefit that you're going to get. If you delay CPP past 65, you get a bit of a bonus each year. And if you take it earlier than 65, you lose a bit of the benefit, but you get it for more, for more years. So there are, there are these interesting breakpoints, but they all depend on life expectancy uh, or mostly depend on life, life expectancy. So if you're basing your planning on a longer than average life expectancy, which I think is reasonable because you don't want to plan around uh, average and then have a 50% chance of your plan 
failing if you if you live uh, longer than longer than average. So if you're if we're planning for a longer than average life expectancy, pretty much in any in any case at that at that age, taking CPP and OAS as late as possible is going to give you the best result because the boost and the benefit that you get once it's been paid to you for enough years, that'll outweigh the fact that you didn't start receiving the benefit earlier. Now, when you start getting into things like OAS clawback, uh, old age security clawback, when to take OAS becomes pretty interesting, I guess. And I don't know if I can give all that. There, there are no rules of thumb. I don't know if I can get into all the details in this conversation. We did a whole segment of our podcast on that on potential ways to to squeeze something out of, out of OAS, even if you otherwise would never have gotten any benefit. Yeah, so I, I would say in, in general, there's a lot of nuance in those decisions. And there's a behavioral component too, where a lot of people just feel good about getting the benefit earlier because they don't know how long they're going to live. I think that's also an important, an important piece of the considerations. But if we're just looking at the numbers and what's optimal from a financial perspective, taking CPP and OAS as late as possible is generally going to give you the most the most benefit. Perfect. So that comes to the end of our interview, Ben. I want to thank you on behalf of the Teeth and Titanium podcast. And, you know, on behalf of myself and all the listeners, you've taken an extraordinary amount of your personal time just to educate us and really get into a lot of topics that unfortunately in the dental and medical profession, we don't get a lot of information on. Unfortunately, we take a ton of classes on anatomy, physiology, surgery, and at no point does anyone come and give us a class on taxes or investments or mortgages or anything in the real world once we graduate. And this is something in education that they're trying to incorporate more and more into the dental and medical curriculum. But I think what you've done is you've given us a huge kind of investing 101, financial planning 101 catch up that I think a lot of our listeners will benefit. So I just wanted to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me on. This is stuff that I could talk about all day. Now, if people are really, really interested in what you've had to say and are, you know, you've piqued their interest, where can they find you? Uh, where can they get more information, more content? Uh, where should they go? Uh, so I've got the, a, a podcast called the Rational Reminder Podcast, which you can find anywhere, I guess. If you just Google search it, you'll, you'll find it or search it on your podcast app. I've got a YouTube channel called Common Sense Investing, which is obviously on YouTube. And then my, my company, PWL Capital, uh, we're a wealth management firm. And again, finding, I mean, everything, everything that you find in this day and age is going to be on the internet, including PWL Capital's website. Yeah, definitely. And we'll put links to that in the show notes so that people can just scroll into the episode and we'll have links to all these different things that you just mentioned just to make it easier. I'm not going to say on our veteran listeners because that's ageist. You know, maybe maybe they're great with technology, but for for you know a certain segment of our audience, we'll we'll put all the links in the show notes. Don't worry about that. All right, that concludes our interview with Ben Felix from PWL Capital. Ben, thanks again. Thank you again to Ben for that phenomenal interview. For those that are interested in learning more from him or checking out his other stuff, we're going to put something in the show notes with his YouTube channel, his podcast, just all the information of where you can find him. And hey, you know, Oscar and I talked about we don't have millions of dollars, but if you like what you heard and you got two million plus or millions of dollars to invest and you want to get involved with PWL, they have locations in Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal, I think like a bunch of cities in Canada. Just go to their website and more power to you. Oscar, I think one day we'll pull our resources. I don't know about that, but also if any of our listeners have those two million dollars sitting around, <laughs> we're happy to hang out whenever they want to hang yeah, out. Yeah, exactly.
you you can be a new sponsor on TNT. We didn't receive any kind of sponsorship for any of the plugs we've given on the show so far, with the exception of CAOMS obviously sponsoring us. But you know, we talked about selling to Spotify on a previous episode. We're always we said the number. We said yeah, we said that we're always open for business. Just come come talk to us. Teeth and titanium omafest at gmail.com. We, our ears are always open. So on part two of our mega episode, we want to talk about a journal club. So obviously this journal club is going to be a little bit from an article that was previously published in Jameis, but it's one that mm-hmm. you know, not, in addition to being an article we want to talk about, it stimulates a lot of discussion. We like articles that stimulate discussion so that's exactly what this does this topic stimulates this article stimulates discussion and we had a similar uh thing with that when we reviewed uh, a few months ago we reviewed an article on cbct and pan for the third molar and whether or not it changes your decision and we had a great topic on on what we do and our protocols so this article is called a decision tree for orthodontic and surgical management of maxillary transverse dimension in orthognathic surgery it is by Rasmussen and Viozi and pre-screening. It is an orthodontist and an OMFS. I love it. Again, thumbs up. Collaboration, two specialties. We like that. We love it. And we're talking about surgical management of kind of an orthodontic and surgical problem. Like, this is perfect. You need both. Yeah, you if you had both. two orthodontists, yeah. we'd be like, man, they don't understand what surgery is. Useless. Yeah, useless. If you had two OMFS, then Caminiti would come on and be like, you guys don't understand. Orthodontics is so important. Yeah. You don't understand the ortho. And he might be the one person as an OMFS who's, who understands ortho that well. Also plugged to his wife, who is an orthodontist. Yeah, he's married to an orthodontist. He get away. Yeah, it's exactly. He's, yeah, so he can get away with it. But most of us, you're right. You need the ortho because it's a combined case. Exactly. So this is a good topic. You know, management of the maxilla if it has transverse deficiencies. So what this article does is the entire article summarizes an algorithm they've kind of built for your thought process as far as management of these transverse deficiencies in the maxilla. So what they look at is APD or your arch perimeter deficiency. That's pretty much, you know, how much crowding do you have in the arch? And then they have MTSD, which is your maxillary transverse skeletal deficiency. And that's, so that's ignoring the there, tooth. I think that- yeah. And I think that's good, though, that, that they do focus on both things. Because sometimes as residents, you think, oh, the maxilla isn't wide enough, but you don't realize there's a tooth part, there's a skeletal part. So that's good that they've noticed both. Yeah, and I would say as surgical residents, we're really good at looking at the bone. We're not yeah. great at evaluating the teeth and seeing the crowding. Yeah, yeah. Can I get those teeth to fit? I'm not, yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, and then they look at the MTSE. So that's your skeletal side, your APD is your crowding side. So... What they want to know is what is your primary skeletal diagnosis? So is your MTSD greater or equal to three? And if the answer is no, that means you don't really have a skeletal problem. You have more of an orthodontic problem. Exactly. So when you look at your orthodontic problem, is your APD, is your crowding, is it a lot more than three millimeters? And if the answer is no, they're saying just do IPR, interproximal reduction, reduce it, get your space, get your teeth aligned, and then do a one-piece Lafort. So far, so good. Makes sense to us. Nice that they put a cutoff because I, I, I always kind of wondered how much IPR you can do. And people say, you know, 0.15 millimeters of each two yeah. times six and all those kind of numbers. But I think saying you can get two to three in IPR, it I, th- just I think gives you makes sense. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's fair and it gives you a number. So then they're saying, let's say you still don't have a skeletal issue, but you have severe crowding or APD is greater or equal to seven. Then you're looking at, you know, an extraction case. 
maybe take out a premolar, your classic extraction case. Take out yep. a premolar, gives you tons of space on each side, and then you can align your teeth and close the spaces and have a nice symmetric arch. So I think we can get behind that. That kind of makes sense to us too. The in-between is where I was a little bit more confused because they say if you're in between three and seven, you should do arch expansion, but they don't mean via a Sarpy. They were saying you can no. actually tilt your teeth, you know, up to two degrees on this side and, yeah. you know, on the bottom, you can tilt two degrees and it all counts. But I feel like in residency, we were taught that, you know, dental expansion is one of the Not least stable. stable movements and terrible and avoid that. So what are your thoughts yeah. on that? Yeah. So again, same school of thought. That's what we were taught. Like lingual tipping or buccal tipping of teeth is not really going to be stable. So are you just camouflaging temporary and then your patient's going to relapse? And again, if, especially if a patient is undergoing a Lafort after and they relapse because of that, I just, yeah. in my opinion, doesn't make that much sense. Yeah, that wouldn't be great. I agree. So that's one where we, we might consider maybe more either an extraction case or, or a SARPI or something. I think we might lean towards that more than an arch expansion. But all those led to a single piece of fort because we had no skeletal deficiency. So the next stage is going to be, what if we do have a skeletal deficiency? And what if our MTSD is more than three millimeters? So then we're looking at a different kind of area. And now they're saying it comes down to the crowding. So... If you have minimal crowding, once again, do IPR, and then just do a two-piece Lafort. So you're gonna do your Lafort, uh, your cut's gonna be between your central incisors, and you're gonna have that transverse expansion, kind of like hinging at the front, just getting pure transverse movement. And you know, you know, they're assuming here you have no AP or vertical issues. This is kind of a yep. one-plane problem. And they're saying a two-piece Lafort, that would work. So what do you think, Oscar? Does that make sense to you? Would you agree with that statement? So honestly, with with the very specific parameters they're putting in, yeah, it works. Yeah, right. Like they're they're being very specific, like that you don't have severe crowding, that you don't have uh, any vertical or anterior posterior problems, and so you're doing IPR and a two piece Lafort. Yeah. So seems to make conceptual sense, and I think that you know practitioners would kind of agree with that plan. Now this is where we start to get a little bit in the weeds, and this is let's say you have, you know, a skeletal deficiency no AP or vertical problems, and you're looking at, okay, my skeletal versus my crowding, and my crowding is more than three. If my skeletal is more than crowding, then I should have excess spaces, so I should close those spaces. If my skeletal is equal to crowding, then I should also close those spaces. If my skeletal is less than my crowding, then I need arch expansion. What they're trying to say is, let's say you have you know, a skeletal deficiency, but it's not as bad as your crowding, they're trying to say, even if you align the teeth along your skeleton, you're not going to have enough space. So they're kind yeah. of promoting that whole arch expansion thing again, which is not really something we agree with or that we're taught. No. We're really taught to avoid that. And then they say, you know, now you should do either a bone anchored or a surgically assisted pelt expansion. So they're saying this is the realm where SARPI comes into play. So let's talk about SARPI, Oscar. What do you guys do? When do you consider a SARPI? How do you go through that treatment algorithm? So the, for our algorithm, I think the SARPI involves a couple of things. And again, I know that you're training the States now, so it's a little bit different. You were actually giving me a heads up that insurance purposes. So we don't factor that in Canada at all. And so when we're doing a SARPI, you look at the patient and you're like, first question is one, how big is there a transverse discrepancy? And just a, a ballpark way to do it, if you want to do it quickly, that we use on a quick assessment when you first want to see a patient, is you look at the central fossas of the upper sixes, measure that, 
and then measure the discrepancy compared to the distal buccal cusps of their lower sixes. And so once you take that measurement, you take the difference. If you have a significant difference that you don't think you're going to be able to accommodate with a segmental, that's a SARPI for us. Another thing that we factor in too is, is this patient going to require any further surgery in the future? Because if you say, you know what, this patient really only needs a segmental Lafort and it's done, why would you then do a SARPI and then do a segmental Lafort? Like it doesn't really make sense. Or just do a Lafort after you've done a SARPI. That doesn't make sense. If you know that in the future, this person doesn't need double jaw surgery, you could get away with just a segmental Lafort. You might be a little bit more to stretch the lines and just do that one surgery for them. So that's kind of our treatment algorithm. If the discrepancy is just too big, we are going to be conservative and we're going to do that SARPI. Do you have like a number if, that you usually kind of look out for that discrepancy you talked about? Is there anything? Usually... Yeah, so what we're using actually is around seven. Okay. So if it's greater than seven, we don't think we're going to be able to. Or it's not that we don't think we can do it, but we just think it's going to be more stable yeah. by doing the SARPI first. Okay. Right? Let that heal and then doing the Lafort secondary. Obviously, if we know that they have any significant two-plane occlusion or anything that like that, that's going to require them doing a segmental or you can push the envelopes a little bit more because we know they're already going to get a segmental because of that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think that's a great way for all of our listeners to think about just to follow what you just said. Look at the discrepancy. I think seven is a great number. A lot of exams and stuff they kind of teach, you know, Sarpy indications greater than seven, anterior more than posterior, single plane deficiency. Uh, you exactly. need more arch space. They kind of go into those indications. So it's something that everyone should know. So now we're going to get into multiple plane problems. So let's say you have a skeletal deficiency and there's also anterior, posterior or vertical problems. So we're no longer talking about isolated transverse means. Yeah. You're going to need most likely a segmental Lafort to either close your open bite or level your occlusal planes, your different segments with different planes. This is where we're going to get into it. So they talk about, you know, if you have minimal crowding, once again, less than three, just do IPR and then look at your plane of occlusion and your maxilla. If you have a single plane of occlusion, it's a two-piece Lafort, you're getting your trans... Yeah. Exactly, you're going back. You're just, you need a two-piece Lafort, get your transverse discrepancy, you only have one yep. plane of occlusion. If you don't have a single plane of occlusion, and for people that are newer, what we mean is, you know those cases you've seen where they have an open bite and everything's kind of aligned until the premolar or the canine, and then all of a sudden in the interior, it's like a different step upwards than you have you know, your anterior segment. That's you know two different planes of occlusion. So if that's the case, you're going to do a three-piece Lafort. Because you're never going to get teeth to fit properly otherwise. Exactly. You do not want to extrude the anterior segment. It's super unstable. You're no. bringing it out of bone. High, high relapse potential. You definitely want to avoid that. So that's a three-piece Lafort. Then they talk about what if you have a skeletal deficiency in multiple planes, but you also have a huge crowding issue. So we kind of go back to what we said before. You can do an extraction. So if you want to extract premolars and you only have one plane after, you go back to your two-piece. Or if you have multiple planes, you can go back to a three-piece. And then they mention, in some cases, you can do an extraction and then do a single-piece Lafort. But I have found that even with extractions, as soon as you have multiple planes or you know AP vertical and transverse issues, usually I found it's always ended up being a segmental Lafort. Yeah, it's going to be hard to finish that case properly. Yeah, because you got to remember, you might be able to move things into a certain way, but the orthodontist has to finish the case afterwards. And that's why it's great to have yeah. orthodontic input into all these treatment decisions. So that being said, my overall opinion of this article was I really liked the algorithm and the summary, just kind of condensing everything to one place with the caveat that I had already studied a lot of this. I already have a lot of experience with a lot of this and I understand conceptually every single point. I don't think a junior resident could pick up this article 
and really get it. You really need, it's really meant for seniors in my opinion. Yeah. And so you kind of took the words exactly in my mouth. Like if you picked this up as a junior, you'd probably be lost. You're like, what is this tree even talking about? I have no idea what's going on. And so thought the article was useful in the sense that, yeah, it conceptualizes it. It puts it in a summary table. Realistically, clinically, I think there are easier ways to make decisions sometimes. And we're going to rely on our own knowledge and following this algorithm completely. And then the, the other negative to it is what you just said is that I do think it's, it'll be over the top on a lot of junior residents. Once they do learn the little minutia here and the little important things of the transverse discrepancy of the tooth borne part and all that, then they can actually make informed decisions and realize how that algorithm is being created. So good article, maybe not necessarily right for your first junior residence. Yeah. And I will say, you know, experience is key. And a lot of people will say different things about when they do SARPI. A big yep. thing is, as you said, is insurance coverage in Canada. You can do a SARPI and then go do a LaFour later on. Sometimes it's financially advantageous to do that. In the States right now, I will say I did bring this up with Brian Farrell. And one thing he said is that it is so hard to get insurance coverage and get them in the operating room once to do like a SARPI and then to bring them all the way back again to do a LaFour. It's very difficult. But even despite that, he kind of mentioned that in his opinion, you can almost always just do a segmental Lafort, do one surgery and fix your transverse issues. So he pretty much plans all his cases around that. And if yep. you do have a large expansion, he'll do two things. One, he'll graft the defect using like a little bone that you're getting doing your harvesting of your BSSO or your segmental. And he'll graft the, the expansion. He yep. will also post-op put, you know, those palatal splints you can put in? Yep. To maintain the transverse expansion, he'll put that in as yep. well. So he says, and my experience here so far, it's been great, is that their kind of mindset is you can correct almost everything with a segmental Lafort, and you don't need to bring them back for two operations. He did mention, though, one thing that I think you kind of touched on, too, is that his one difference is if you have a patient with like a V-shaped maxilla and it's so narrow and you're doing that discrepancy and it's just huge between the maxilla mandible, they'll say, yeah, listen, every procedure has its limits. Sometimes you just need a Sarpy to get with and, and, and get expansion. And to that super, super talented surgeon that you're training with, like unbelievable credentials. But I do also think where you work will shape how you work. And so if he was up in Canada where there is the ability to be a SRP, he may be more lenient on the fact that I'm not going to try to stretch the segmental as much as I am as I'm going to because I have to. He may be more lean on just doing the SRP. Yeah, exactly. So Good article overall. We enjoyed it. And we love these articles that kind of just stimulate discussion, not only between us and our two training programs, but also with the listeners. You can think of how you manage transverse discrepancies. Do you do SARPI? Do you do segmental? We'd love to hear back and let us know kind of what your approach is, because I'm sure people have a ton of experience with this and can let us know kind of what their protocol is. So that wraps up our journal club for this episode. Let's jump into recommendations. All right, for recommendations this month, I want to jump back into a TV show. And this TV show is pretty much my favorite TV show of all time. It's on Netflix. It's called Black Mirror. Anyone that has seen this show instantly is going to be like, oh, yes, I know that show. I think it's quite polarizing. People are either obsessed with it like I am or they don't really like it. I haven't met someone that was kind of in the middle and said, oh, it's only OK. What I'll say about it is it's one of those shows that you every episode is kind of unique in the sense that you could watch the episodes in any order and it doesn't matter. With oh. the exception, there's just one episode that kind of references all the previous ones. So obviously you can't watch okay. that one. But there's a common theme. The common theme is they take one aspect of society 
and technology that we have right now. And they kind of fast forward it 20 years in a realistic way. So one example is they take Instagram and they add the feature where you can rate people instead of just hitting like, you can actually mm-hmm. rate the post or rate the person out of five. And you, oh. as a result of that, you have an Instagram profile that has like your star count out of five. Let's say you're a 4.2, you're a 4.5. That's pretty ruthless. It's ruthless. But then it, the bad part is it starts showing how your entire life becomes shaped sure. by this. So for example, the main actress, she goes to buy a coffee and she interacts with the coffee barista and they're chatting away. And as they leave, they like both tried really hard to impress each other. So there's the person kind of shows their phone and says like five stars and you get like a little alert that says they rated you five stars and they do it to each other to try and boost up. But then later on, she'll talk to someone as she's walking away. It says, you got a notification saying that person will give you two stars. Oh, and so you're kind of getting instant feedback on your interactions, but it's making everyone try really hard, which makes people really fake. That is crazy how that would actually make people be not who they really are. Yeah. You have to fake it all the time for your rating. So someone yeah. say, whatever, you have a bad Instagram rating, who cares? No, they show how once this becomes part of society, people will use it. So, for example, you want to rent an apartment in a nice neighborhood, they look at your star rating. You want to get a loan, they look at your star rating. You want to rent a car, the car you're allowed to rent and how nice it is, is based on your star rating. Everything becomes based on your star rating. And it just goes to show, like, right now, we live in a society that is so addicted to social media and Instagram and Facebook that... It just takes that kind of mindset and technology and fast forwards it 20 years. But I don't even know if you have to necessarily fast forward 20 years. We kind of already do that. So when yeah. you take an Uber, you have oh, a yeah. rating. Yeah. And so true. does your driver, right? Yeah. And, and, and I'm sure that people, a lot of people, not saying uh, either of us because we're both really nice people to everyone, <laughs> but I'm, sh- I'm sure there are people who are probably nicer to the Uber drivers than they used to be to cab drivers. That's true because they get because a rating. Now that, there is a rating attached to that to that personality and to that, how they're seen by that Uber driver. And even the Uber drivers, they get a rating. And if their rating drops, it's something really harsh. I think if it's below yeah. 4.5 or 4.2. They're not allowed to drive for I a know. period of time. Like you have to get your rating up. It's yeah. it's ruthless. So I highly recommend Black Mirror. It's been out for a bunch of seasons. Each season's about only three episodes, four episodes. And as I said, you can watch them in any order, but the theme is similar. So what I recommend is if you've never seen this show, Go to season two, episode four. It's called White Christmas and watch that episode. It has John Hamm, who's famous from like Mad Men and all these different shows. And just watch that episode. If you like it, you're going to like all of them. So just keep watching different ones and maybe start at the beginning and go forward. If you don't like it, then probably stop because they're all similar <laughs> theme that way. And I doubt you're going to really enjoy the Change entire thing. Yeah, exactly. That's what I would say. So that's my recommendation for this month. What about you, Oscar? So it's funny now that, you said that I'm actually going to put it in my in my log of things I should look at because my recommendation is actually one that you recommended on one of our earlier shows. And I was running out of things to watch. I'm like, okay, let's see what Wendell was talking about. And at the Formula One drive to oh, survive. Oh, yes, yes. So, so, so good. At that point I had, yeah, at that point I had said, I am actually a Formula One fan. I'm a pretty much a sports fan. Any sport, if there's a ref, a race, anything, I'm going to watch it. And so you had talked about it. I was like, I hadn't seen it, but I really ignored it. Then I ran out of things to watch. I started watching it. Nice it to know my opinion awesome. is so valid that you only follow it I once know. you run out of other things. Really boding <laughs> exactly. well. Exactly. It's honesty about this podcast. We're <laughs> honest on it. But it is. It is really, really good. So I would recommend that. I would give that a thumbs up as well and, and kind of second your recommendation on that. It's interesting. It's nice to see the perspective. It's crazy to see how much work and how much effort is put into these cars and by these drivers. It's really, really almost mind-blowing the attention they have to have. And we don't really think 
how fast they're driving on these on these cars. It's life or death. Every little mi- it is life or death, and we don't sometimes when we're watching the ro- live race don't realize that sometimes. Yeah, it's it's yeah. phenomenal, and it's funny. I like to think of people when it comes to cars. I divide people's knowledge about cars or or who they are when related to cars into two camps. So I don't know which camp you're in, Oscar. I think I know, but we're going to see. So if I ask someone or someone asks me what car I drive, I say I drive a Mazda CX-5. Okay. If I ask you what car you drive, what would you say? I would say, first of all, this is my first car ever because I've always lived downtown, so I never needed one. Oh, nice. But now, yeah, yeah. So I've never actually needed one. Never drove one, was in residency, always took like just public transit. I drive an Audi A5. Oh, wow. Must be nice. (laughs) Private practice life is treating you well. Yeah. A little bit different than residency. Yeah. So this is my question to you. We're on a podcast. You're going to say Audi A5. If you were in the street or talking to your friend, would you say Audi A5 or would you say A5? Honestly, to tell you the truth, I would just probably say I drive an Audi. Drive an Audi. Okay. Yeah, that works too. My point is, I think there's two types of people when it comes to cars. There are the people, and I had an intern last year named Ali. Shout out to Ali Abbasterani. And if you were to ask like about a car, those type of people just say, oh, I drive an M3 or I drive a CX-5 or I drive an A5. They don't even tell you the brand. They just tell you like one thing about it because anyone that knows anything about cars knows like- Will know. Yeah, an M3 might be, I don't know, Mercedes or BMW or whatever. Uh, Everyone knows an A5 is an Audi. Everyone knows a CX-5 is a Mazda. They just know, right? And yeah. I find there's the other camp, which is people like me that know nothing about cars. So when someone asks, I'm always giving you as many details. I'm like, I drive a Mazda CX-5 2018. I drive a white Mazda <laughs> yeah, exactly. CX-5 exactly. with these size tires. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because I yeah. feel the need that if I don't tell you this information, you're not going to know what car I have. So I'm in the camp of someone that knows nothing about cars. And I still loved Formula One Drive to Survive, having never seen Formula One ever. And I know you were someone that knows more about cars and you actually knew more about Formula One than me. So... I think that but, and, the fact that you liked yeah, it is a good sign. And yeah, and I will say, I knew more about you, more more about cars than you. But like, again, I'm not one of those people who's going to know everything. And I knew I knew more about it because I liked the sport of it. I liked the racing part the competition. of it. But exactly, you got it. But the show, amazing. Perfect. So look, at you got a recommendation from both of us. If that's not enough, why you listen to this podcast? I mean, you listen to us, you listen to our opinions. You got If we both recommend something, it's got to be good, right? You can ignore one. You can't ignore both of us. That's a good rule. You can ignore one of us. You can't ignore both of us. So you're going to watch Black Mirror and you're going to let me know what you think about season two, episode four. I can't wait to hear it. And that wraps up TNT episode six. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we will see you guys next time. Take care, guys. Bye.